This is an ABC podcast. G'day, welcome to Country Breakfast. I'm Clint Jasper. For the past year, bureaucrats from Australia and the European Union have been hard at work hammering out the details of a free trade agreement. And as it usually goes with these things, agriculture is proving to be the biggest sticking point. But instead of the usual argy-bargy about tariffs and quotas, this one's a war of words, like feta and prosecco. For me, it represents uh, the tradition and also our dream. Um, because my grand, our grandfather started um, a first vineyard and uh, it was our dream to produce Prosecco. Why the details of this agreement could change the future of that dream ahead in the show. But before we get to that pressing question, Jess Davies joins me now to wade into this week's biggest rural news. Good morning, Jess. Morning, Clint. And wading in we are because this week it's all about water, specifically in the Murray-Darling Basin, where the ABC's Four Corners program says millions of dollars are being wasted on a scheme designed to improve water use efficiency on farms along the basin's rivers. That's right. The $13 billion Murray-Darling Basin Plan is designed to take water from irrigated agriculture and return it to the environment. Critics of the Basin Plan told Four Corners it's being rorted by big business to make a profit at the expense of taxpayers, with little water being recovered for the ailing river system. That Four Corners report this week focused on large corporations being handed public money to expand their water holdings, and it sparked calls for a full and independent audit of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. One such example is Webster Limited, which has reportedly used more than $40 million granted under the plan's infrastructure scheme to build dams capable of storing 30 billion litres of water in the Murrumbidgee Valley in the southwest of New South Wales. But Webster's chairman, Chris Corrigan, says the Four Corners report demonstrated a fundamental misunderstanding of the scheme in general and their involvement in in it, saying the funds they received total a net amount of $18.8 million after the value of water entitlements they return to the Commonwealth are taken into account. You need to understand the whole entirety of the program, and the program is that you sell your some of your water licences to the government. In exchange for the sale of those water licences, you get grants, but those grants are specifically directed at improvements in water efficiency so that you become more efficient with the water that you retain. And the whole point of this exercise is to increase the efficiency of the, the use of the water that you retain. That was Webster's Chris Corrigan speaking with RN Breakfast's Hamish MacDonald. Now, the Australia Institute's Marianne Slattery was featured in Monday night's Four Corners program and spoke again on Wednesday in a separate RN Breakfast segment. What was her take on all of this? So, Ms Slattery said Webster's has used the funds to construct dams on the Hay Plains in the New South Wales Riverina to capture what's known as supplementary flows. That's water that irrigators can access after big rain. Usually these make for a temporary windfall in a wet year or after 
after a big rain event, but the use of dams will mean they can be captured. Ultimately, though, it seems the largest issue in all of this is that it comes down to transparency, of which Marianne Slattery says there is very little. The best way to shut up the gaggle of discontents is transparency, and there is a dire lack of transparency through the entire process. Senators have been trying to get information through the parliamentary process. They get rejected. Um, when they finally do get documents from government, it's, it's mainly, you know, totally redacted. You know, we try through FOI processes. We've been trying for two years to get a list of the projects through the efficiency program in New South Wales, through parliamentary processes, through freedom of information requests. They're just not available. Let's stay with water for a moment. Last week on Country Breakfast and prior to that on Landline, we had stories focused on the growing concern about the river's ability to deliver water downstream to an expanding horticulture industry along the Murray. And now it looks like the Victorian government's actually taken action on that. This week, the Victorian government put a hold on all new licences to irrigate in the lower Murray River. Minister for Water, Lisa Neville's, says increased demand for water downstream has resulted in high summer flows, which are impacting the environment, such as the Barmachoke and Goulburn River. She says the new licence review process will last the next 12 months. I think everyone agrees that if we continue to see irrigation develop like it is now and the same sort of extractions from the lower Murray continue to grow at the pace they're growing, that we will see huge risk to the environment and huge risk to existing entitlement holders. Some big action there, but we'll park water for now. Um, last week, the federal government introduced laws to deter on-farm trespass, and unsurprisingly, it's raised the ire of animal activists and those concerned about animal welfare. Mm, animal welfare group Vegan Rising, that's the one that disrupted Melbourne streets in April, says the federal government's new trespass bill is threatening their right to take action against animal cruelty on farm. The bill would create two new offences for activists that incite people to trespass, damage or steal from agricultural land. The tough new laws are expected to pass through the Senate when Parliament returns later this month. It's something farming groups have lobbied hard for after a number of farms became the site of protests and animal thefts when an online map of their location and business details was published last year. Kristen Lee, the founder of Vegan Rising, says the government is attempting to suppress what's happening in agriculture. Uh, I think it's a classic example of the government trying to hide the truth of what's really going on in this country in the treatment of animals and um, trying to keep that disconnect of people's choices at the supermarket so that they keep being dumbed-down consumers who are unaware of what's really going on. So our aims are to show the truth so that we can help make change and help make people make choices that are actually in line with their values. Well, this has become a bit of a staple of social media gripes these days. Flustered shoppers begging the big supermarkets to stop encasing fresh produce with single-use plastics, especially when some of that produce has a perfectly good natural wrapper, aka the skin it spent thousands of years developing. But now in WA, one company thinks it might have a solution. One of Australia's largest producers of sweet corn and beans has reduced plastic packaging on its produce by up to 80%, saving hundreds of thousands of disposable plastic trays from entering Australian rubbish bins 
each month. Trandos Farms have properties near Gingin and Broome and are the main supplier of beans and sweet corn to major supermarkets in Western Australia. And they also export corn interstate and overseas. Now, much of that produce would be packed onto plastic trays, wrapped in more plastic and sent to the market, where after being sold, the plastic would usually end up in landfill. But after five years of experimenting, managing director Jim Trandos says he's found a way to tightly wrap pre-packed corn using a method which cuts out hundreds of thousands of those plastic trays. It's very annoying when you see what gets thrown out. I mean, it's it's bothered me for a long time. It's a lot. So in the overwrapping version that we had over the tray, even the plastic that we had was more. We even had to use additional plastic wrap. In this case, we're actually only using exactly what we need. Some good news there. Now, to finish off from your ginger tea to your ginger beer, assuming that it is made locally, things might be getting a touch cheaper from now on. Good news for people fighting colds, but for Queensland (laughs) and New South Wales ginger growers, they say their earnings per kilo have halved compared to last year, and that's mainly due to extra supply. Ginger farmers meeting on the Sunshine Coast say that while supermarkets may charge $25 per kilo, growers this year received about $3 to $4 a kilo, say that compares to 6 to $8 last year. Industry Extension Officer Rob Abbas says the price has been pushed down by new ginger farmers entering the market, pushing Australia's ginger supplies from 8,200 tonnes per year to about 9,000. So we're in a position as we speak of a fairly high supply and uh, fairly depressed pricing. A $20 markup is pretty impressive. I wonder where all that money goes. <laughs> Clearly not to the farmer. Not to the farmers. <laughs> Jazz, thank you very much for that. Thanks, Clint. How's the world going to end? An asteroid? That thing is travelling faster than a fighter jet. Or something more familiar, like when the rays of our sun spark chaos. Definitely a when. It will happen at some point. Science friction is staring down the apocalypse with me, Carl Smith, Natasha Mitchell and a cast of evidence-based alarmists. None of this is meant to be a scare tactic. It's just reality. Science Friction, 5pm Sundays or anytime on the ABC Listen app. That is, if we're still here. It's time for a whip around a big country. This week, the town that's challenging traditional gender stereotypes with rugby players swapping the ball for the ballet bar. We'll get an introduction to a most unusual sport as we meet members of the Australian Rabbit Hopping Society and learn about the Japanese weaving style that's gaining a big following as a form of therapy. Traditionally, weaving is very precise, it's very pattern based. You really have to concentrate, you don't want to make a mistake because it's obvious. Saori is the opposite of that. In fact, the word saori comes from two Japanese words. Sai meaning originality or uniqueness, it's a Zen word, and ori meaning weaving, so together it becomes saori, meaning a unique style of weaving. And that's what you're doing at the the loom. It's it's a human-made textile. We'll meet the woman sharing the joy of saori weaving from her home in regional Victoria coming up. But first, it's described as being a bit like horse show jumping, but on a much smaller scale. It turns out the sport of rabbit hopping has a dedicated following. Uh, This is Spunky. He was actually from a pet shop in my early days of rabbits. He jumped out of the cage and picked me in the pet shop. Leapt into my arms, licked me and fell asleep when all the other bunnies ran away. That's a boy. Lift them leggies up. And again. 
Spunky is one of the competitors here today. Hi, I'm Donald Scheel. I'm at a primary school in Lithgow, a mountain town in the central tablelands of New South Wales, where the Rabbit Hopping Society of Australia is setting up for an event. Spunky's owner, Catherine Naismith, is an avid rabbit hopper, and she's brought several rabbits to today's competition. Eight rabbits here today. Some are in mini, some are in easy, and I've got Spunky here in medium. Can you tell when you've, you've got a rabbit that's got a great hopping ability, is that something that's immediately apparent or do you need to develop that further? Sometimes it is, but sometimes it depends on the day and the environment as well. Like I've got some that are a bit slow to start, they might pick up later and sometimes they just won't hop and you can't make them if they don't want to go. <laughs> Most of them do. And you've got a lot of rabbits here and you said you have more at home. What is it about them that, that keeps you interested? They fascinate me every day with their behaviour. And their individual personality. They've all got something special about them. Neil Worley is the president of the Rabbit Hopping Society. He says the sport has similarities to horse jumping, although on a much smaller scale. In terms of being able to do it, they need to be at least five months old. And then it depends on the rabbit. So you really are looking for an outgoing rabbit that likes to do stuff. How did you get involved with, with this sport? I was involved in showing rabbits, I still am, and a couple of people went, oh, look at this rabbit hopping, and we looked it up and saw stuff in Denmark in particular, but those areas, and we went, oh, that sounds interesting, so we did some research and started doing it. And what are the degrees of difficulty involved in courses like this that we're looking at today? We've got really beginner rabbits, which is mini, then the rabbits that know a little bit go into easy, then they go to medium, difficult, and then elite is the top class. Sadly, we've got no rabbits at the moment in Australia at elite course, but that's fine, we'll get there. And is the goal to hold events like this to, to try and train some rabbits up to reach that elite level? Absolutely. You know, it's like any normal athlete, you want to improve, um, and I think the rabbits want to do that too because they really enjoy doing it. And that's what we're looking for is them enjoying it. We're not forcing them to do it. You are a clever sausage. Vanessa Allen is the organiser of today's competition, the first ever held in her hometown of Lithgow. A veterinary nurse by day, she tells me how she fell in love with the sport after stumbling onto the scene a few years ago. I got a stray rabbit at work initially and I didn't know what to do with it. Looking around on the internet and I came across the website and tried it out and I've been doing it ever since. And you've organised today's event yeah. and it's your first step to try and bring rabbit hopping events to, to Lithgow. Yeah, yeah. So the weather up here is really perfect for rabbits. They don't do well in hot weather. We can hop for a little bit longer up here in Lithgow. We can extend our season if everyone's happy to do it. And I travel to where everyone else lives so they decided to come up here this time. What's the appeal of, of rabbit hopping would you say? It's fun and it's a little bit cute and I just really enjoy it. It's a really great day out. And it is a serious competition, but we can all have a laugh and a bit of fun and we have a dig at each other and about me winning. <laughs> we won. Yeah, and you got a victory today with Snickers, the rabbit you're holding right now. Tell yes. me about uh, your, your journey with Snickers. How long did it take to get him ready to, to hop in a competitive yeah, so I went looking for a hopping rabbit and I happened to be on the RSPCA website and I came across a couple of rabbits at Katoomba and so I was a little crazy and decided to take some jumps up and I wanted to see which one would hop better 
and the first one I tried didn't hop very well and the second one they're like are you sure he's not a very nice rabbit I'm like yeah no it's fine I only want him for jumping doesn't need to be super cuddly and I tried him and he did it really well and so I took him and now after all this time he's pretty cuddly we've just moved from mini which is beginner and we've gone from easy and now we're in medium so if we keep winning at that, we'll move up to difficult. And how many centimetres can Snickers jump now? What, what heights can he get to? Uh, today was 28 to 35. Yeah. And, and what's the highest level that, that a rabbit can generally get to? What's considered the, the, top, the top heights? The elite levels are around 55 to 58 centimetres in height. And then they're also about 20 to 25 centimetres in width as well. So they're jumping high and far and over things like water jumps and stuff like that as well. And is that something you'd like to continue to build towards? Do you think you could get to that point at one, yeah, at one stage? Yeah, I want to see how far he wants to go. We are sort of reaching a point where age may become an issue in his jumping. But if he's happy to keep jumping, I'm happy to keep going with him. So it's a ticking clock? Yeah, yeah. We'll see how far we can get him. <laughs> he's doing pretty good at the moment. Vanessa with Snickers. Yes! <laughs> he has improved immensely. Jared and Natalie Mendham never really intended to become farmers. But after coming into a block of land just outside Richmond in Tasmania's southeast, they decided to plant pine trees and now run one of the most unique farms in the region. The best Christmas tree farm in southern Tasmania. We think it's actually the only one of its sort. It's uh, you know, the only one where you can actually come out and choose your tree and get it cut down and then tie it onto the top of the car and go home and put it up. Hello, I'm Tony Briscoe here on Natalie and Jared's Christmas tree farm. While it's quiet here today, come December, this farm is swarming with families who come to choose their perfect Christmas tree. It's a tradition the Mendhams were exposed to while living in the Northern Hemisphere. So we lived in Canada, in Vancouver, for a lot of years and we had our children there. At the time, we made that classic Canadian tradition of going out to a farm and having a family experience and choosing a tree and hauling it back on the top of your car to your house. So when we came home, our boys were little and we ended up with this piece of land and we we went through a lot of ideas about what to do with it, but we always knew it wouldn't be our full-time job because we both work otherwise, we both have our own careers. We wanted something that could, could tick along by itself, wasn't too high maintenance, but was something exciting and interesting to keep us interested, so we put the trees in. When we first planted, we planted a thousand trees. That was behind where we are now, and that crop took probably five years to sell out. So things have been speeding up over that time, and... Um, We've also had some ups and downs as well. In the sheep pulled out half of a crop one year and then another year all the crop died because of drought. So we've gone through some learnings as well when it comes to farming. So we're working it out by the seat of our pants, really. Really the biggest thing is the family experience at the end of the, at the, end of the year, literally. And in December, having the families come out and choosing a tree. I don't think we could do a business where it was wholesale and we just worked away at it ourselves. Having hundreds of families come out and choose their tree, it's really special. Things have sort of ramped up in the last couple of years where even just this last year we had lineups of an hour to get in before people could actually even choose their tree and then the car park was full. I think we probably had to have had maybe a thousand people on the farm in four hours. And so that's changed from the first year when we sold 23 trees or something yeah. like that. We also now have a market, a Christmas market with pizza and wine and cider and some other local um, producers come along and so it becomes a bit more of a bigger experience. 
So what does that tell you about what people want? I mean, they probably want you to expand this and probably do it full time. It's time now to sort of, you know, put up or shut up. So we've had some years of noodling around and the first few crops were dry land and now we're, we're putting in watering and we're getting more serious about it. Now that we're starting to ramp up, we're sort of, again, finding our own way in a lot of this. But, um, yeah, no, the people, people want an experience. Um, they want something where they can come out with their kids and uh, go for a wander around the farm. For, you know, as Nat says, probably, it might be their own only farm experience each year. So to be able to provide that and see you know, how happy it makes kids just running through the trees. And one of my favourite lines when they see a spider on the tree that I'm cutting down for them is like, oh, that's a spider. I'm like, oh, that's a Christmas spider. Can you see the hat? And just little fun things like that. So, yeah. Now, let's look at the basics of what, what are you growing here and how hard are they to grow? So we're actually growing bog stock radiata pines, so the ugly things you see growing off the back of the golf course or what they grow in forestry as well. But it's because of how we prune them, and we prune them multiple times a year and watering and all that sort of thing that means that they actually grow into that uh, bushy conical shape that's the traditional Christmas tree. A lot of people don't believe us that they're radiatas because they're so used to these weedy things that grow on the side of the road. So the way we prune them really makes a difference. Mm. And that's that's probably what sets them apart from what you find in the servo as well. So at the local survey, they would have pulled them out of a forestry plantation or something like that. And that's that's great. Um, it's just a very different product from what we've got here. As we've improved our pruning techniques over the years, they've got more and more bushy and more and more traditional looking. So we've probably gone from sort of a 20% strike rate to probably more of an 80 to 90% strike rate now. But um, compared to what some of the farms are doing on the mainland, I really want to ramp up how good they're looking. And that's probably my main challenge over the next little while is to really get to that point where they're just perfect. How many trees are you planting this winter? And how many will you sell in summertime as you approach Christmas in December? So this year we're going to ramp it up. We're going to put in 2,000 trees. Come summer... We've got limited stock over the next couple of years, so really we're looking at maybe 350 to 400 for the next two to three years, just because of what we've got in the ground and um, the issues that we've had. But hopefully after those three or four years, the next 2,000 will come on and then we'll be able to start ramping up. And we were saying before that it's not a full-time job. You both have um, occupations elsewhere. That's probably where we've done well with the farm in that I've got a marketing background and Nat's got a photography background. So both of those assets have done well to promote the farm. We actually have a bit of a problem where our our online presence, our Facebook presence is really popular. We have a really great Facebook community, but then we run out of trees inevitably every year. So we just let down so many people. So we need to, yeah, we have a bit of an imbalance. We need to ramp up the um, amount of trees we're growing. Looks like you're going to have some busy Christmases coming up. Yeah, it's, it's pretty mad because we've kind of trained the people who come here to know that you have to be here on the first day to get the best tree. Um, which means yeah to get any tree that we sold out in four hours last year and so it does make that first day mad so we're having to come up with some strategies to to combat that. Jared and Natalie Medham they never intended to become farmers but now operate the only Christmas tree farm in southern Tasmania. They were speaking to Tony Briscoe. You're listening to Country Breakfast here on RN. Still to come, why a Japanese style of weaving is rising in popularity as a form of mindful meditation. And we'll head to the country town that's bucking the traditional notion that ballet is for girls and football for boys. Yep, so you're going to hold this position and you'll do a plie and stretch and squeeze. And plie and stretch. Traditionally, in many country towns, girls did ballet and boys played football. 
but here in St George, a small town in southwest Queensland, ballet teacher Fiona Gasky is part of a movement challenging traditional gender stereotypes. So we're going to do three demi-plies and then a grand plie. That's pretty good. Now I would actually spread your hands a bit. Oh, I see. Right there oh, is where you want them. Hello, I'm Ellie Bradfield. I'm watching on as Fiona takes ballet class for the local rugby club made up of both male and female players. And then we just bend down, you can do stick your butt out, that does nothing for you. So you want to go For me, I think it's about being able to accept whichever way people need to express themselves. And we all know that we need to move. We know that we can tap into our innermost feelings through creative expression. And whether that is in football or whether that's through the performing arts, but being able to make sense of that. So I think being able to experience that movement, whichever that is, and being able to understand the emotions that you're feeling at the time and make sense of it, I think is a reason to bring the football and the ballet together. Now put your hands on the bar, so you want to go straight down. When you come up, you need to squeeze all your muscles together and you'll do a plie and stretch and squeeze. Oh my gosh, that was very good. <laughs> we need those strong fellows in the ballet to lift up the ballerinas, but also for other reasons as well. I just think it demonstrates that even in a, a regional town, we, we can be inclusive in the way we express ourselves and the way we tap into creative expression. Well, what I love about this community is that we have a very open attitude and that we are open to people being able to express themselves in whichever way they need to and supporting that. And we know that our footballers down south do regular ballet training, so I think there's a double-edged sword there. They'll might help them along with their skills. I think the agility, the flexibility, the coordination, the strength, it all goes together. And I think there's definitely benefits in practicing skills in both. Ben Gardner is a member of the St George Frillnecks Rugby Union Club, who are taking part in ballet classes, partly to improve their on-field performance. Yeah, strengthening your body, your core fitness, you know, that sort of stuff, hand-eye coordination, it all comes in together. In certain aspects of rugby, there's line-outs where you're actually lifting players up and they've got to get a core strength and hold their body position. When you're being tackled, how to fall, how to roll, how to, how to keep yourself you know, out of trouble and stop injuries. Ben says the ballet classes also send an important message about sport being for all, regardless of gender. Definitely, it's an open book, isn't it? Ever since I think probably Rio was uh, the big one for the girls sevens that got it really kick-started when the Aussie girls won gold. And it's sort of highlighted the fact that girls can play footy and it just shadows the, the fact that boys can play ballet too, you know, why not? The club's fantastic at the moment, a uh, really good vibe. We've got twice as many teams this year because the girls are on. There's probably 30 odd girls registered. There's probably another 30 something blokes registered. So, you know, we've, we've doubled our size. We really needed a, a feminine touch. We had um, a committee made of blokes who didn't know how to do things the right way. And we've got PR girls in there that are, you know, showing the club as it, as it should be. The whole culture's changed a lot now because of the, the fact that we've got girls on board and it's not just a, a, a blokey bloke thing. Um, a lot of the guys that are playing, their girlfriends are playing as well. You know, we've got mums, we've got daughters, we've got all sorts of playing. Now that we've got a, a really good vibe in the club, we can, it's brought a lot of people out of the woodwork and they, they like coming in the town. Come in, watch a game, we've been lucky enough to get some wins. Uh, the, the camaraderie and the fellowship, just giving another out for those that are struggling with the drought affected you know, properties and that sort of thing.
The St George community is also benefiting from a visit from the acclaimed Queensland Ballet. My name is Callan Farrell. I'm a teaching artist with the Queensland Ballet. So our regional tour is designed to expose people to the arts and to ballet in particular, no matter their geographical location. So it's breaking down that elitism that people only in city areas can access the arts and ballet. Um, and that there is this stigma around, you know, if you don't live in Brisbane, then you don't have access to the arts and that's just not true. And that's why we're out here to promote that and promote what the arts have to offer. I think sometimes there is this underestimation of what ballet is and what it does require of the individual's body. Uh, it is a team sport. You do have to be conscious of everyone around you. Uh, and it also is about yourself. And it requires a huge amount of uh, physical uh, effort um, and de dedication. For local boy and aspiring dancer Jack Sullivan, it's a unique opportunity to be mentored by a male dance teacher. It's really important for young male dancers to foster connections and networks where they can ask questions and go to people for advice and inspiration. So that's really special that he's here and I get to offer that to him tonight. So one day my mum asked if I just wanted to do ballet. I thought it would be a little bit interesting, so I decided to sign up. Then I started to really like it, so I just keep on coming. It's fun, it's really enjoyable, and if you just put a little practice into it, it makes it really easy. I came across Sari very accidentally in the mountains of Japan when I lived over there. So I learnt the language, the Japanese language in high school and university and, and always wanted to go over to Japan and, and see firsthand this amazing culture. I finally got over there and while I was travelling, I was volunteering my way around Japan and I'd heard that a person in the mountains needed help building a pizza oven. So I trekked off into the mountains, turned up to this tiny little hamlet in the middle of nowhere. And in the middle of this hamlet is this old wooden schoolhouse. And it's no longer a school, it's actually been turned into an arts and crafts village. And that's where I turned up to build this pizza oven. So as a thank you for building the pizza oven, the owner of the schoolhouse, Toyomi, taught me sari weaving. She was one of the first sari teachers in Japan. And from there, I was absolutely hooked. At her home in central Victoria, Prue Simmons is sitting in front of her weaving loom. Hello, I'm Jessica Schremer. I'm here watching Prue as she practices the art of sari weaving, a skill she learned over many visits to Japan. So I stayed on in Japan for a number of months and I kept building on my sari knowledge. And then eventually I came home and Toyomi had actually gifted me my first sari loom. So I was able to be in Australia and actually be able to enjoy sari weaving. But every year I would go back to Japan and visit my mentor in the mountains. For Prue, sari weaving has become more than a hobby. It's a peaceful refuge from a sometimes frantic world. It got to a stage that it became my form of escape after a really busy job. I was in a really stressful job. And Sari for me was my meditation at the end of the day. It was a way for me to be able to create beautiful textiles, but also to be able to just switch off. And that's, one of the, that's what I call the power of Sauri. You know, you can actually just relax at the loom. You don't have to concentrate too hard. Now Prue is sharing the power of Sari with others teaching workshops in the weaving style. 
She says sari weaving is very different to other types of weaving. So traditionally, weaving is very precise. It's very pattern-based. You know, you really have to concentrate. You don't want to make a mistake because it's obvious. Sari is the opposite of that. In fact, the word sari comes from two Japanese words. Sai meaning originality or uniqueness, it's a Zen word, and ori meaning weaving. So together it becomes sari, meaning a unique style of weaving. And that's what you're doing at the, at the loom. It's, it's a human-made textile because there's no such thing. You don't have to do a pattern. You don't have to conform to a certain way of weaving. It's just pure creativity. It's a really simplified form of weaving too. So it means that anyone can actually sit down and start it, and it's amazing how quickly you actually create textiles. So it's more like painting a picture, but with yarns and textures and colours, rather than actually trying to create a pattern. And so at the end of the day, you get something that has, it's full of character, it's gorgeously unique, and it's made from the heart and not necessarily from the head. So it's my kind of creativity. And now, Prue, you're one of only three accredited teachers here in Australia. To actually become a teacher wasn't quite an easy journey. No, it wasn't. I, there was a bit of training involved. And when I first went over to the Saori family, to the Joel family in Japan, and told them that I really wanted to be a teacher, they said, yep, you know, that's great, but you have to come back. You have to train with us. And you have to be here for, you know, a month's time. You have to do all the training we want you to do, pay the money we want you to pay, but live with us, eat with us, just become one of us. And at the end of that time, there's no guarantee after that training that you will be a Saori teacher and be able to open your own studio. It's whether we think you actually fit with our family and whether you are one of us and whether you do actually believe in the Saori philosophy and, and, and live and breathe it. So for me, it was so surprising because, you know, I just thought that, you know, in a Western way of thinking, I'd go in and I'd sign a contract and I'd shake a hand and then I could be a Saori teacher and, of course, do some training. But, of course, it's Japan. And Japan is about relationships. It's about honor and loyalty and developing those bonds. And so it was one of the most inspiring and slightly terrifying few weeks of my life because I didn't find out until the very last day if I could actually be a Saori teacher after all of my training. When I was very lucky at the end to be able to um, be granted my Saori license and to come back here and share this amazing style of weaving here in Australia. You're sharing this knowledge now. Has there been an increased demand? demand for sari weaving? There really has been a huge increase in demand and I think it's very much because people are coming back to wanting to learn how to do handmade things to, to learn how to make your own textiles and also find a creativity that is really easy to do and that's what Sauri is all about. So I'm finding I'm getting interest from right across Australia. Now looking at the logistics of it, you need a specific loom but what materials do you use? The great thing about Sauri weaving is that you can use anything in your weaving so it's a really sustainable form of weaving too so rather than other projects which you might have to get a particular type of yarn or a particular amount of something with sari anything goes so you can use whatever's in your stash it's a great way to de-stash it's a really good way to use what you have around you so you can use any kind of yarn in your weaving you could weave with paper you, I've got a, a, a student that actually weaves with objects she finds at the beach you know you can weave with sticks you can weave with all sorts of stuff um, you know you're really able able to use what you've got around you and so for me that sustainable element of being able to create things but not be you know be using up what you have is also a really good thing. Prue Simmons is teaching the Japanese art of sari weaving from her home in central Victoria. She was speaking with our reporter Jessica Schremer.
Ahead on Country Breakfast, the rapid-fire, amped-up style of auctioneering is a heavily male-dominated skill set. And soon we'll meet the young stocky determined to break into the industry and the speech pathologist with the tips and tricks to get her there. From the personal to the intellectual, make sense of the world with big ideas on RN, like our recent program on sleep. Sleep is strange. It's potentially a dangerous situation. The vulnerability that is sleep, it doesn't seem like a good idea, evolutionarily speaking. The best talks, forums and festivals, big ideas, Monday to Thursday, 8pm, or hear it now on the ABC Listen app. Australian farmers hope a trade deal with Europe will bring with it greater access to half a billion people and a market worth almost $25 trillion. But that might come at a cost, with Australia under pressure to stop using some of Europe's most famous names. Negotiations into the trade deal began about a year ago, and as Brett Worthington reports, one of the biggest sticking points could be the use of terms like Prosecco and Feta. It's a generous pour for tastings today. Elena Mascheta is explaining the differences between her bottles of Prosecco in the second floor tasting room of her family's winery and vineyard. So very dry style. Out the window, there's vines stretching as far as the eye can see, dotting the landscape almost in spite of the incline. A sea of green leaves covers rickety wooden vines along hills as steep as a cliff face. For me, it represents the tradition and also our dream. In this region of northeast Italy, Prosecco is more than sparkling wine. Our grandfather started um, a first vineyard and uh, it was our dream to produce Prosecco. So it's part of our uh, life, so this is the reason why uh, we have to protect it because uh, it's something that we always had. William Spinaze is a third generation Prosecco producer. Prosecco is known around the world as an Italian style sparkling wine. But few realise its name comes from what used to be a tiny town in northeast Italy. Mere kilometres from the border with Slovenia, what was once a village of Prosecco is now a suburb of a bigger town. But its legacy lives on. Uh, actually, um, we, are, we know exactly that because it's so popular, it's easy to copy it or uh, to replace or to make it in different areas. But we have to to protect uh, it uh, with all our forces because uh, this is where the original Prosecco was made is here. Wine production in this part of Italy dates back to the Roman Empire. Prosecco production occurred later in the 1300s. Today you have to travel further west, past Venice and south of the Dolomites to find the modern powerhouse of Prosecco production. Uh, if Prosecco could produce everywhere, uh, for sure, for us, could be a big problem for the co- our economy. A decade ago, Italy changed the name of what used to be called Prosecco grapes. Changing the name to Glera proved pivotal for the Italians in establishing a geographical indication, or GI, for Prosecco, much like Champagne has on the sparkling wine that comes from that region in France. The contemporary name change infuriated Australia's wine industry, which accused Italy of a devious attempt to claw back the brand. They're angry because sales of Australian Prosecco are worth more than $60 million a year and are tipped to grow beyond $200 million a year in the next decade, thanks in part to export growth, up 400% in recent years. Even if we protect in an official way uh, since 2009, so it's quite recently, uh, but is part of our, our uh, life, is part of our, our history. 
Geographical indications come in various forms. For some, the raw ingredients must come from a specific area. For other GIs, it's the legacy of how the product has been made that means production needs to happen within a specific area. In some cases, like Prosecco, it's both. We see the geographical indication system as rural intellectual property. Phil Hogan is one of Europe's top officials, serving as the European Commissioner for Agriculture and Rural Development for the last five years. You know, depending on the culture and the area and tradition uh, of where these products are produced, gives a premium price and uh, gives a really an added value uh, for the producers of those particular products. The EU is Australia's second largest trading partner, but both economies want to form closer ties under a free trade agreement that they've been negotiating for more than a year. Both sides can see GIs will likely be a sticking point in reaching a deal. Though Europe has thousands of them, it will only seek around 200 protections in Australia, with a handful likely to be the most divisive. Prosecco tops that contentious list, with Feta a close second. Okay, this is for you. Just grab a coat. They're disposable. There's white as far as you can see in this dairy factory in Ioannia, in northwest Greece. There's white walls, white uniforms, white hairnets, and most importantly, thousands of blocks of white cheese soaking in brine in white plastic containers. Like the Italians in their Prosecco, feta for Greeks is more than food. Nasas Kusadinos says it represents history and a culture that should be protected like ancient ruins. Our fathers, our grandfathers, they were producing feta many, many years ago. For us, feta is something more than just a simple cheese. Mm. Okay, it reflects uh, a way of life. It reflects also a quality of way of life. To be called feta in Europe, a cheese must contain a mix of sheep and goat's milks and be from a select region in Greece. These producers want the same protections in Australia, insisting producers there need to change their product's name. For us as Greeks, okay, it's like, it's like a joke because we know the product. So what we should do is that we should educate the consumers abroad, around the world, so they can separate the products. At least if they taste once a real feta, a real Greek feta, then they will understand the difference. Speaking with European officials, they point to a recent free trade deal with Canada as one that Australia might follow. But that won't be good enough for NASA's Cusadinas. I do think that the Canadian example is a very good example about the agreement. Mm. It should be an improved, improved one. Why is that? It allows products that have been produced already to Canada to continue to produce for the period of time, which this period of time can be extended. So, and that can go on and go on. That doesn't give full protection to the product. What we, we would like to have to Australia is that we would like to have a full protection of the FETA brand. Well, my friends in relation to FETA and Canada had no protection whatsoever until we got the agreement between the EU and, and Canada. So we've gone from no protection to uh, you know, a lot more protection than we had before the agreement with Canada. Phil Hogan offers an imposing figure inside the halls of the European Commission. The broad-shouldered, bespeckled Irishman towers above most that he stands alongside. Sitting in his office, he's unapologetic for Europe's push for greater GI protections in Australia. I, I've been uh, seeing in the Australian media some references to the fact that we wish to uh, protect names such as chorizo, ricotta, mozzarella, salami or... Chevre, names like that, which is wrong, because, uh, you know, these are terms that are not even protected in the European Union. Australia will push hard against the protection of single words like prosciutto, but appears willing to accept the full name, prosciutto di Parma, as a GI. The bulk of Australia's concerns relate to cheeses like brie, camembert and parmesan. 
Commissioner Phil Hogan says the burden of proof is on Australia to prove names like Prosecco and Feta are generic terms, like butter or milk, to justify why they shouldn't get champagne-styled protections. There has to be evidence produced of the use of this particular name over a long period of time in order to have it protected. I think that from an Australian producer's point of view, they will have to produce this particular evidence in order that it doesn't conflict with our Italian friends. Be it Italian Prosecco producers or Greek feta producers, they recognise they're in a battle to protect their brands because of the success of their country's migration. Their expats have left home and introduced cultures to foreign lands, but these farmers say that connection to home diminishes as future generations are born abroad. They say they're doing this for their children. Yes, this is another dream, yes, to pass uh, this dream and uh, and this market uh, for me to, to my daughters and for him to his uh, sons. Brett Worthington reporting. And since returning from Europe, Brett sat down with the Federal Trade Minister and started by asking Simon Birmingham if Australian Prosecco producers should expect to have to change their product's name. No, certainly producers shouldn't look at it in those binary terms. Uh, yes, the European Union will ask for certain protections of geographical indications through the process. Uh, we won't be resolving any of those until the very end of the process once we have secured the best possible market access conditions that we can. Uh, and even then, if we are to the point of contemplating any geographical indications to be protected as part of EU demands to get a deal overall, uh, that will only be after we've consulted extensively with Australian industry and understood what the implications of any of those things would be. Europe has sent a list to Australia outlining the products that it wants protected. Why haven't you released that yet? We'll have a look at, uh, at that and of course it's something that other countries do as part of the process uh, and we understand that uh, in many ways uh, putting that out there can be a way to elicit uh, industry feedback and help to help inform our negotiation. The idea has happened with Champagne. The Spanish uh, wine industry produced Carver to move away from the name Champagne and they grew the market by labelling it differently. Isn't there an opportunity here for the Australian government to take the lead to transition Prosecco into a new product that it can stand out on? Well, in the wine industry case, Australia already has a wine agreement with the EU. And that went through geographical indications many years ago now. Uh, and so we gave up terms such as champagne at that time and a number of other terms that Australian industry uh, adjusted, uh, port being another one that springs to mind, and Australian industry adjusted and renamed and repackaged branding in response to that. Notably, Prosecco was not one of those terms at the time uh, because at the time it didn't have commercial value. Now the Australian industry has built Prosecco as a commercial brand. Uh, our view in relation to wine brands is that those negotiations happened between Australia and the European Union around those terms, those geographical indications in the wine sector at the time. So I doubt there's too much more to discuss there, but there are of course other product categories, especially in the dairy sector, that the EU have demands. Uh, that's where our preconditions before that I said apply that we will consult with industry, we'll hear their arguments, and we certainly won't be trading anything away until we see the market access terms that the EU is offering us. One of the other potentially controversial products will be feta. Are you expecting there will be a debate on that? Uh, well, again, let's just see where we go. I have no doubt that Australia's dairy producers will have strong views in relation to feta. Uh, there may be compromise options that can be struck as well. So uh, the EU uh, have indicated that in some cases uh, there may be ways to talk about how a term like feta is used, not necessarily to prohibit it or to ban it, 
uh, but just to make sure that the fact that it's uh, made and produced in Australia is clear and that there can be uh, no confusion. What's the point of this deal? There's a lot of close ties already with Australia and Europe. Some in Europe say it's just to send a message to the world. So is there any substance in this? Uh, there's absolutely substance. I mean, the symbolism is important in the face of US-China trade conflicts. It's actually critical to send the message that uh, countries stand for trade. Uh, but there's a lot of opening of trade that can occur between Australia and the EU. And many of our agricultural producers, particularly in the meat categories, face very small quotas and tight restrictions at present, and we want to bust those open. And we see opportunities there, opportunities in a range of other categories, as well as the chance to grow our services, exports, and, uh, and ensure that uh, in terms of the global value chains that exist nowadays, uh, there's as much integration as possible for us to be part of the EU's value chains, even in areas such as their automotive productions, where Australia may be able to be niche supplier in certain categories. Federal Trade Minister Simon Birmingham speaking with Brett Worthington. My name's Clint Jasper and you're listening to Country Breakfast. Now, livestock agents from across the state have met in Wagga Wagga this week to refine their auctioneering skills. It's a typically male-dominated industry, but this year, among the 24 auctioneers, is 19-year-old Courtney Hands, who's determined to make a name for herself in the game. Hannah Laxton-Kuntz met with Courtney out at the yards to find out about the training and what drives her in the industry. 19-year-old Courtney Hands is a woman on a mission. At this year's annual Livestock Property Agents Auctioneering School, she's the only woman. And while it may be rare to see females in the industry, Miss Hans says it shouldn't be. I would love to see more females coming up into it. It's harder to pave your way in the industry compared to the men and as the times change it, it will get easier and I can't wait for little girls to look up and say, well she did it, I can do it. With less than a year under her belt, Miss Hands was drawn to the job at an early age. For her, it was the perfect combination of helping people while working with livestock. You have to find the best price for your client and do the best that you can to help them because at the end of the day, I'll get paid, but they don't get paid if I don't do my job correctly and they don't get paid as well as they should if I don't do my job correctly. Righto, there we go, the good Marino use here now, going to be at uh, 175. To have Courtney here, uh, she's a very good agent, I've known Courtney for a while. That's Jeff Rice, the course coordinator for the auctioneering school being held in Wagga Wagga this week. To have Courtney make the effort to come to the school, see I've seen her this morning and just improvement in the first couple of stages that we had this morning, she'll, she'll be a very good auctioneer. Mr Rice says while a good number of girls show interest for work experience and placement, sadly most don't follow through. Look, it is a very male-dominated uh, industry, sadly, uh, but we're definitely seeing more and more starting to, to try and push through the field, that's for sure, uh, and, and possibly that could be an issue for them. Uh, but yeah, as I say, like, I've seen several female auctioneers and, and once, they get that, uh, once they get that confidence, they're as good as any male auctioneer there is. In this school, it's good because we've got the speech pathologists here to guide us through that. But I, I think um, when you're selling, you're hyped up and you forget some of those things. Eliza Galvin is one of those speech pathologists. The auctioneers that I'm training here today, um, I pull the voice apart into four different components, starting with posture, and then we move up the body to breathing, which is really important as far as supporting the voice. Then we do a little bit of work on projection, not too much because the idea is that they don't focus too much on that. When everything else works, then their voice will project well. 
Um, most importantly is clarity, to make sure that they are as clear as possible so that the buyers can understand where they're up to and they can get the best out of the market. Mrs Galvin has been working with auctioneers for more than 22 years and more recently she's noticed more women coming up through the ranks. There's usually about one female at a school. On the odd occasion we might have two. Uh, in the past it would have been much more rare. I think the biggest challenge is that their anatomy is slightly different in that their uh, vocal cords are smaller and their capacity to project their voice isn't as easy as it is for a male auctioneer. Um, the noises that you have to project over in the sale yards are quite different, quite um, strong, and for them to be able to uh, maintain a good, deep, low quality voice can be a challenge for them. Um, I obviously am just starting out, so I've got the likes of Ben Ems and Harry, Harry Larnick, who I work alongside as auctioneers, who I watch day in, day out, and listen to how they sell. Um, and I think it is hard. It is hard to keep breathing properly. I'm lucky that uh, I actually have a deep voice <laughs> compared to a lot of other women. Um, I'm lucky that my voice is a little bit deeper than normal but I think yeah it's hard to keep your voice from going right up high. But as a woman in an industry full of men Miss Hands is clearly identifiable, a quality Mrs Galvin says could work very well in her favour. I think women have a different communication style and it certainly shows up in their selling technique. Um, perhaps a better capacity to put words together into sentences um, and communicate, communicate their information across. Uh, they're much better at varying their, their pitch, um, and uh, which, which makes them often interesting to listen to for the buyers. So there's, there are definitely some things that the females bring in that the, that the men need more support in. I think it's really important for women to feel empowered to be able to um, take this on as a, as a role and a job. Um, it, it's a very male dominated industry and coming in as a, as a female professional into the industry I can see the challenges that women are faced with um, but it's, it's, it's changing and I think our younger generation of men coming through are helping to support that change. I think they're a lot more um, aware of um, the uh, the roles that women can take on as, as being as equal as, as their own. Um, so I think that that's something that we'll see a lot more of in the future. I'm pretty determined and so no, I, when I want something I, I go for it and I'm lucky that I have the right people like Scott Foster. He really put the wind up me and said, well, if you want it, mate, you've got to go for it and I'll back you 100% and that's exactly what he's done and I've, I've tried to back it up. So I, I just love doing the agency game and hope that I can one day be up there with some of the best. Hannah Laxton-Kuntz with that report. You can read more about all the stories in this show at our website. Look for Country Breakfast in the Programs tab on the RN homepage. You can listen back to the show there and using the ABC Listen app on your phone. My name's Clint Jasper. Edwina Farley will be back in the chair next week. But for now, stick around for more great listening here on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.